we could, as far as just for me, we could we could sing that one every <laughs> every time we meet, and I'd be good with it. That's a an amazing song written by Stuart Townsend, and uh, just the the meaning of of those words and speaks very uh, close to what we want to look at this morning from the fifth chapter of Romans. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Romans chapter 5, and we'll read verses 6 through 11 of Romans chapter 5. And the title of the message this morning is God's Love, Sin, and the Cross. God's Love, Sin, and the Cross. From Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Now, this is a, a, a very just loaded passage of Scripture, and yet, in that, it has a very simple message. Uh, it is, um, you've heard me say this before about certain passages, um, it, it really gets at what is the very heart of the gospel. It is the gospel message. It is the good news of what Christ has accomplished. I would say one of the sister passages to this would be 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, where Paul said, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I have preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all, in other words, was this the entire message of Paul? No, there was a lot more. But he said, I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scripture. So what we really want to talk about today, and from that title, you can kind of tell the title was that it's God's love and sin and the cross. These are just very basic things that every Christian who, who calls himself a Christian, must understand. If you don't understand those things, then you're not a Christian. <laughs> so these are very, very basic truths of the gospel. And sadly, even some of these very basic truths of the gospel have been and still are today uh, in some places in dispute. Uh, there's a very prominent um, <clears throat> self-described evangelical a British minister who wrote a book 
in which he described the teaching that Christ bore our penalty on the cross in our place, thus atoning and turning aside God's wrath, he, his just judgment against our sin, he described that teaching as cosmic child abuse. He also said that to think God would punish anyone for the sins of another would make God a monster. Now, that's, that's, that is heresy. That is, that's absolute heresy. Uh, if you deny the substitutionary, penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, then, then you don't understand the gospel at all. And so for him to say that, uh, we look at our text this morning and we say, well, what would Paul say to that? What do the scriptures teach us? God inspiring the apostle Paul to write, what did he say about that topic? What do the scriptures teach us to think about what God is doing at the cross? There's not really much of anything else more important that we could talk about today than what, what was God doing when Christ went to the cross? What was going on there? And so Paul, in the very verses that we read from Romans, is really putting down an anchor into some truths, really three great truths that will help us correct that terrible error that you, you just heard in the statement uh, just a minute ago. But maybe, even if you haven't gone that far astray or that far out of bounds, Maybe you have wrestled with some of what is the true meaning and significance of the cross. What did God do at the cross? What did he accomplish at the cross? Why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did Christ come and live life and then go to the cross and die on a cross and be raised again? What, what is going on in all of that? So Paul's going to aim directly at that subject here as he unpacks the good news of what Jesus Christ has accomplished through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. So these verses get at the very heart of the gospel, even as it's disputed and rejected by some who profess to be Christians, it's vital for us to truly understand it. And when I say vital, I mean absolutely vital. It is, it is something that we can't lightly move, move beyond. It's the very uh, foundational tenets of the Christian faith. So in this passage, Paul is explaining to us the accomplishment of the cross of Christ, and he's pointing us back to the Father's love for those who were his enemies, which is demonstrated and proven in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. I'm going to say that one more time, because this is summarized. That's just a short summary of what Paul is going to tell us in this passage. Paul is explaining to us the accomplishment of the cross of Christ and he is pointing us back to the Father's love for those who were his enemies, which is demonstrated and proven in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. So when, when people object to that doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, they are rejecting the truth of the Bible. Now that's a confusing sounding phrase, so before we jump into our text, I want to unpack that just a little bit. It's just really a shorthand term that we use to discuss and to describe three really important biblical truths. Penal, substitutionary atonement. Let's take it in three parts. Penal is where we get the word penalty. The penalty for our sins. There is a just penalty that sins deserve that must be paid. And so if you are a sinner, there is a penalty for that. That's, that's what penal means. Just going to stop there. Jesus took our place under that penalty. 
He did so as our substitute. So that's the substitutionary part. Jesus took our place underneath that penalty. Uh, we sing a hymn, Hallelujah, What a Savior. And it has these words. I believe it's in the second verse. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sometimes when we're singing these hymns, especially like the one that we just sang, it's honestly hard for me to lead that song because I love the words so much. I, get, I, I forget that I'm supposed to be singing loud and leading everybody in the worship of that song. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. That is substitutionary atonement. And then, of course, the last word in that is atonement and one that you probably are very familiar with. So through his sacrifice, the just judgment and wrath of God for my sin is atoned for. He paid the price. That is what penal substitutionary atonement means. The penalty for my sin, Christ took my place and he atoned. He paid that penalty for me. He literally took my place. So uh, before we jump in also, I don't want you to misunderstand me this morning. And I am, <clears throat> this is probably going to be a little bit different, but I do want to say something about the simplicity of the message that we find in these verses. Doctrine is very important. And, and some of the deeper things that we've already covered in this book of Romans are very important and very beautiful. You think about all the doctrine that Paul has already unpacked in Romans. And then most of you, I'm sure, especially if you were raised in a primitive Baptist church, you know what's coming. You know what we're going to see as we continue through Romans. In Romans 8 and Romans 9, 10, 11, 12, we could, we could keep going. Every, you know, we say that Romans 8 is a favorite chapter of, of all those who are called primitive Baptists. That's probably true, but so is a lot of the other ones. There's a lot of beautiful doctrinal truth that Paul's going to unpack in Romans. And yet, in a passage like today, I think sometimes it's good for us to zoom out a little bit and say... Yes, is it true that we believe in election and predestination and all of those things? Yes, but there is also a simplicity and a beautiful thing just to say that I'm a sinner, that Christ had to take my place, he died for me, and because of that, my sins have been atoned for, and all of that is because of his love. Um, what an amazing thing to just stop and think about the very simplicity of that message. So we should always be able to get back to uh, the simple message of the good news of the gospel. Now, we have disagreements with other Baptists and, and some important things like election, predestination, total depravity, particular redemption, irresistible grace. There's a lot of people in this county that, that are at worship this morning and in which we agree on a lot of the things about the gospel, but those things I just mentioned we disagree with. But we can agree on some of these very simple things about the gospel. We can even bring those disagreements closer to home. The conversion of the elect, the necessity of belief, perseverance of the saints, evangelism and the Great Commission, justification by faith. Some, some of the things that even Primitive Baptists disagree on, but you know what we do agree on? The very simple message of the gospel that you're going to hear Paul talk about this morning. We agree on that, and those are the things that we can come together around. So even this morning, I will make some of these distinctions as we go through the verses, but I want our primary focus to be this morning on the simple message that we hear from the Apostle Paul. We're going to use Romans uh, chapter 5 verse 8 as kind of our outline to go through this text. I'll read that scripture again. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. What a message. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the first thing we want to see is that this passage tells us that God commendeth his love towards us. So what does that mean? God commends his love toward us. What does Paul in this passage and in the phrases around it that expand on it and explain it is focus in on the simple truth of the gospel. And, God, and Paul's a good teacher, so he repeats himself a lot. Anybody in here? I know we got some teachers in the room. You ever have to repeat yourself? <laughs> you know, Or do you remember when you were in school if you're not a teacher? Um, don't you hope that the teacher said things more than just one time? You know, you're, you're not going to learn something very much if they just say it once and pass on and say, well, you missed it, that's it. Paul's going to say some of the same things over and over and over, and we'll see that as we go through the text. Paul points back to the love of God and says, far from what we heard earlier in that, that negative statement about how could God be that way and that would make God a monster and all of those things, uh, another thing that that man had said is that the wrath of God is just a human projection onto God. It was one of his famous quotes. In other words, there is no such thing as the wrath of God. God is all love, and if we say anything about the wrath of God, that's our projection onto God. I don't know what Bible um, that he's reading. But far from being some sort of barbaric pagan thing, the cross is actually the supreme demonstration of the love of God. It is not just about his wrath. And so we'll come to that in a minute when we talk about the atonement. But for now, let's stay on the subject of God's love for us. The word used here is agape. And I know most of the people here are very familiar with the differences in these different words that we use for love. In the Bible, there's different kinds of love. There's brotherly love. Um, there's, and then there's this word agape, which is, is a little more intense. It's a divine love, a sacrificial love. Love, And that's the kind of love when Paul says here in our text, but God commendeth his love toward us. It's the word agape, a sacrificial divine love for his people. And, the, and God's love is an integral aspect of the gospel. Like we said, the cross is not primarily a display of the wrath of God or the justice of God. It is. It is. It, it clearly is. But Paul says to us that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross is God commending his love to us. Isn't that an amazing thing? That he commends his love to us in such a, uh, an amazing display of divine sacrificial love. And the word translated commendeth in our King James Version, it means to show, prove, establish, or exhibit. So when, when he says he commends that love to us, he is showing us, proving to us, establishing to us, and exhibiting to us his love for his people through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. 1 John 3, 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. We could do an entire sermon series just on the love of God. Just, just trying to measure the depths of God's love for his people is, is not fathomable to us. We're not capable um, as human beings 
of that kind of love apart from a work of grace in our life. We're not capable of that kind of love. And, and yet God has that kind of love. He demonstrates that love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The shocking reality and meaning of what God is saying through the Apostle Paul here is really actually overwhelming. What condescending love. And this is why this message is so hard to preach because I want to jump ahead here. But you're going to see why in a few minutes as we begin to describe the condition of man, why this love is so amazing. Uh, what sovereign grace, what amazing truth it is and what condescending love it is that God would love a people like we're going to describe in just a minute. Paul says it this way. I mean, people won't even die for good people, let alone giving up their life for wicked ones. Paul actually uses that logic. In verse 7, let's read it. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. So he kind of says two different things there. He says, you know, it, it's pretty rare. It'd be, a, it'd be a rare thing for a righteous man that you would be willing to die. So I love the way Gill kind of described this. He said, you know, it sounds like he's saying the same thing. It's a righteous man will one die, and yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. He said, you know, a good example of that would be the Pharisees were considered to be righteous men in the New Testament, but a lot of people didn't like them. <laughs> they didn't have a very good reputation. And so they, they probably would have been scarcely died for them. And yet even for someone who was more humble and was right, not just righteous, but also good, was good to you and good to maybe your family and all of those kind, kinds of things. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. Even in that case, it's possible. And, and, Paul, and Paul makes that known. He doesn't say it's impossible. It would never happen. We know cases of that, don't we? And don't we exalt that in our culture? You think about some of the heroes. I do a lot of work with veterans um, through an organization called Seven Days for the Troop. And some, some of the stories that you hear are just absolutely amazing of what some of these men have been willing to do to lay down their life for not only their, their comrades in, in arms, but also just the people of the United States, just their, their homeland. They're willing to lay down their life. So it does happen, but he says it, it's scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. So Paul says, I mean, people are, it's, it's even a rare thing for people to die for good people and this points out a truth to us about the love of God God does not love us because we are lovable that's basically the point that Paul is going to make here God's love is not on us because we are lovable there is no merit that we have that afforded us the love of God so who then would do that who would sacrifice something so precious for those who are such wretches and such enemies to him like I said it's very hard not to get ahead of herself in, in this message. His love is such that its display or proof is best seen in the sacrifice of his only begotten son on the cross of Calvary. That's how God, that's the ultimate. Now there's other expressions of God's love for us. I mean, we can think of, of a bunch, but the ultimate expression of God's love for us is expressed in the cross, the scene of the cross where God's only begotten son came to earth and was crucified on a cross to pay for the sins of his people. So we marvel with the apostle and with all who see the message of the gospel with spiritual understanding, how can this be? We sang, how deep the Father's love for us. 
how vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son that and and, and yet then it points to us for people like that how is how how can we even measure a love like that how can there be a love like this john 15 uh, verse 13 let's turn there in the gospel of john 15 and verse 13 Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So I want to use that to kind of wrap up uh, this section on the love of God. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. I can't help it. I've got to read on a little more. I wasn't planning to, but you know what Christ said next? Ye are my friends. How? How? How is that? You know, you know how we normally do friendships is that people that we like and that um, have some benefit to us and that are kind of on the same page with us, we become friends with them. We don't become friends with everybody. We just become friends with those who are... How is it that Jesus could call us, ye are my friends? Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Now, I did say that I would point out the distinctives. So we're going to think about these statements that we've read from the Bible about the love of God and ask yourself if that would apply to all men for all time without exception. If so, what would be the implications for the state of man after death? If God's love were applied to all men, all time, without exception, what would the implications of that be for man as far as their salvation? When he says, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Christ laid down his life for those whom he loved. And there's all kinds of implications that come with that. If God loves you, if God's love is placed on you, there's implications for that. So we're not going to, I'm not going to define that. We're not going to go into deep detail on that. But think of those passages like John 3.16, other similar passages and compare them with this text. God displays, proves, and exhibits His love for us by sending His Son to die for us. And what are the implications of that? So there are certainly distinctive and deeper truths here. But I want to go back and say this. I think that's not what I want our focus to be today. I want to mention it. But what I want our focus to be today is I want you to personalize this passage. What does the love of God, don't think about what is the extent of God's love, what, who all does God love, who does he not love. What I want you to focus on today, and I really think the intent of the Apostle Paul in this passage was, what about God's love for you? What does that mean to you? And what does the gospel message mean to you when, he, when Paul says that God commended his love toward us? What does that mean to you? Now, secondly... And this is the part that it was very hard not to get to from the beginning because it's really kind of describes to us how amazing the love of God is. When we go back to our text in Romans chapter 5, he says this in verse 8, God commendeth his love towards us in that, so he's, he's saying the reason that's so amazing in that, while we were yet sinners. That's part of the amazing nature of God's love while we were yet sinners. So point number two, we were yet sinners. Our first point was that God commends his love to us. 
Secondly, we were yet sinners. He points to our situation now. Did you know that that's part of the gospel? If we're going to be faithful in sharing the gospel, we have to be faithful to tell men that they're sinners. And that is a difficult thing in today's society. Nobody wants to hear that message. But it is an essential part of the gospel. Yes, do we want to talk about the love of God? And yes, do we want to talk about the atonement? Yes, we do. But there's this part in the middle that, that is really important. While we were yet sinners. That is, that is an essential part of the gospel that Paul would preach. Look back to Romans 5 verse 6 at the beginning of our passage. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. So I told you, he repeats these same concepts over and over and over throughout the passage. So first, he says, he describes it as that we are without strength. Another way you could say that is we are helpless. We don't have ability would be another way to say that. Now, I told you I'm not going to get into distinctives. What do you think that is? <laughs> I mean, what do you think it is when we say that you were without strength? If you're a sinner, he calls you a sinner in other places. Here he says without strength, without ability, without power, impotent would be another uh, meaning of that word there, helpless. That is, we're in a situation where we do not have the ability to save ourselves. For when you were yet without strength, when you couldn't do anything to save yourself, Christ died for the ungodly. Another way to look at that was you have a penalty on you that you're unable to pay. There is a cost for, for your sin before a holy God that you have no way of redeeming yourself from. I mean, this is a big time oversimplification. But if you got a mail in uh, uh, a mail, if you got a bill in the mail next week and it said you owed ten million dollars. Now this is a, we're way lowballing this thing here, okay? But you owe ten million dollars. I don't think maybe I don't know everybody in this church well enough, but I don't think anybody in here would be able to pay that bill, right? <laughs> Try to make it high enough where I'd be sure, right? I know y'all that well. I think. Nobody's going to, in this room, is going to write a check for $10 million and say, I got that. That's no problem. I can cover it. You can't cover it. That, that, and like I said, that's so much an understatement of what we owe to a holy God because of our sin. And so that's how we look at this. When he says without ability, there's, there's really no English words that we can come up with to describe what he means when he says, you were yet without strength. We are in bondage to sin. We're in bondage to the flesh. We have no power in ourselves to do anything about that. I love the way, and I, I can't remember who it was. I tried to go back and find it and see if I could give them credit, but I don't know who said it this way, but I loved it, so I'm going to quote it. He said, we are in Egypt, and not only that, we're happy to be there. We're eating slop and rolling in the pig pen with the prodigal son, and we're happy to be there. We are weak we are helpless, and at that very time, Christ died for us. It's not that you came back to Christ, and because he saw that you were going to come home to the Father, because of that, Christ died for you. He said, when we were in Egypt and happy to be there, Christ died for us. When we were the prodigal away from God, in the mud and eating the slop, Christ died for us. In due time, 
also an important part of this. Vine's Dictionary says, when use of time, this word signified a fixed or definite period or season. Not, not by happenstance, a definite, fixed period or season of time. Sometimes an opportune or seasonable time or the perfect time, the complete time. So God's plan, God's love for us that he had before the foundation of the world at exactly the right moment and exactly the right time, completely planned by God, Christ died for the ungodly in due time. Romans 5, 6. And then another word, look at the same verse. At the appointed time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's not just that we're powerless. It's not just that we're helpless. It's not just that we are weak. It's not just that we can't get ourselves, not that we don't have that ability. It's that we're also ungodly. What does that word mean? What does it mean to be ungodly? It means that we want to worship ourselves. We don't want to worship God. We want to worship our idols. We are ungodly. While we were ungodly, Christ died for us. God shows his love for us even when we were ungodly. God made you in his image. When God created all things, what did he say about creation? It's good. It's good. But we are ungodly. That has been marred by sin. Sin has marred that. And because of that, we are ungodly. We are not like God. We are not, we are not fulfilling his created purpose for us. We have fallen short of that created purpose. He also says God shows his love for us there in, in verse 8 in our, the main part of our text. He calls us sinners. So not only are we without strength, not only are we ungodly in another part of the, the scripture, but he also says that we are sinners. We've not only transgressed his law, we've not only broken his law, that's what sin is. We've done what we shouldn't have done and we've not done what we should have done. Both of those things are sin. We've actually failed to do and to be what he made us to do and to be. It's a total failure. So that makes us sinners before a holy God. It's not some minor imperfection in our performance. You know what I thought about on that? I guess it's probably because I just had my performance review with my board. And so when they do that, they have this big questionnaire thing and they fill all these questions out. But at the end of it, they have these, and I hate these things, but they have these Likert scales. If you know what that is, if you've, you've probably taken one before as a survey or something. It says, how likely are you to, to do this or that on a scale of one to five? And you have to put five is the best and one is the worst. You know, and, I, and I really hate those things. Here's the truth about our condition as a sinner. It's not a minor imperfection. You didn't get a two or a three. It's not like, well, you didn't do the best, but it, it's a flat zero. It's a negative number. It, it can't even be measured. So it's not, some people like to make sin out like it's this minor problem. This is a major problem. This is something that has separated you from fellowship with God. It has ceased your fellowship with God. God cannot be in the presence of sin. It's a total failure that Paul is talking about here. And he describes in so many terms. We've already mentioned three or four of those terms. We have totally missed the mark. So we're without strength. We're ungodly. We're sinners. It actually gets worse. While we were 
enemies. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So just a minute ago, I read you a passage where Christ called us what? Friends. How many of you call your enemies your friends? <laughs> Probably not very many people. You know, you think of the person that you can think of in your mind that is, is just against you. Somebody in your life, maybe you have to go all the way back to grade school and that, that bully that you just didn't like. Or, or maybe when you were a teenager and you had a rival um, in sports or over some other issue, you had a rival, your enemy, the person that was against you. We were enemies, and yet we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So we're weak, we're ungodly, we're sinful, we're the enemies of God, we are at enmity with God. We were waging war on God. So why is Paul showing us this? The reason he's showing us all of this is because God is a just God. His righteousness is absolute, and there is no compromise in his commitment to do all things for his glory. Now, I'm going I'm to pause here for a minute. I'm going to reread that, and we're going to talk about it for just a minute. God is a just God. His righteousness is absolute, and there is no compromise in his commitment to do all things for his own glory. That is a, and I, I hope it kind of had this impact on you, but if it didn't, I want to explain it to you. That ought to strike fear in your heart as a sinner. It ought to strike fear in your heart as a sinner, that God is a just God. What that means, God can't, with you being uh, all of those things, with you being without strength, ungodly, sinful, enemies of God God cannot because he's a just God and he's a righteous God he can't say that's okay that's all right we're just going to sweep that under the rug God cannot do that because of his very character and nature he will not compromise his commitment to do all things for his glory so when mankind exchanged the glory of God for other things you remember back in Romans chapter 1 we talked about that uh, in Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through the end of the chapter the wrath of God is on those who exchange righteousness for other things that are not righteousness. How much of that is going on in our culture today? The great exchange of the glory of God for other things that are not even remotely close to His glory. We didn't live for His glory. We fell short of His glory and holiness. We put ourselves under His righteous wrath. That was the teaching of Romans chapter 1. Our biggest problem is God's justice and righteous demands for our condemnation because we have all, every one of us, fell short of his glory. And then this statement, God will vindicate the infinite worth of his own glory by punishing the wicked forever in hell. That's a hard statement, ladies and gentlemen. That's a hard statement. God will vindicate the infinite worth of his own glory by punishing the wicked forever in hell. Now, I just described us without strength, ungodly, sinful, enemies of God. You could add to that list the wicked. Now, that's a sobering thing to think about. God is going to vindicate the, the, the infinite worth of his own glory by punishing the wicked. So because of that, we are, uh, that we are without help. We, we've already established we can't do this on our own. But then we go back to the beginning of the message. God has love for his people. 
And so through that, we're going to get to our last point. Before we get there, he says in verse 9, Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So Paul's putting a fine point on it. He's saying the problem is the wrath of God. That's the problem. You're a sinner, and because of that, you are under the wrath of God. We must be saved from wrath through him. I posted this recently, and it's a quote by Paul Washer. He said, when a man gets saved, he gets saved from God. The justice of God was coming for you. God saved you from himself. God saved you for himself because of his love. And God saved you by himself. I love that quote. There's a lot of good doctrine in that quote, isn't there? God didn't need your help. God saved you by himself. Another quote on this topic, uh, Charles Hodge said this, If he loved us because we loved him, he would love us only as long as we loved him and on that condition. And then our salvation would depend on the constancy of our treacherous hearts. But God loved us as sinners. As Christ died for us as ungodly, our salvation depends not on our loveliness, but on the constancy of the love of God. You see what he's saying here is, if our salvation depended on us going to God and loving God, then it's all about the constancy of our own hearts, which the Bible describes as desperately wicked. He says treacherous. But because it's based on the love of God, there's a constancy there that we know about the love of God that we can trust, that is unchanging, that will never change the everlasting love of God. That's basically what he's, what he's getting at there. While we were still without strength, impotent, powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. It's a very important, important aspect to this gospel message that Paul is bringing. So when we were undesirable and worthless and helpless and without strength and enemies, hostile, we were the enemies of God, rejecters of truth, proud and self-willed. The best that could be said about us is our righteousness is filthy rags and our heart is desperately wicked, full of deceit. Then how is it that we can be saved? And, and I hope that I've done a sufficient job of, of pointing out what the Apostle Paul is teaching here. Because that ought to be the question that you have at this point. How then is it that we can be saved? You said all of these things about how sinful we are. The best thing that we can offer, our righteousness is as filthy rags. All of these things being true. And you said God is a holy, righteous, and just God. And he cannot sweep sin under the rug. Then how is it that we can be saved? Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. If you want to write that one down, uh, I'll read this one. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, wherewith he loved us, very similar to our passage, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What an amazing text. That because of everything we just heard, when we kind of unpack that a little bit more in Romans, and then we go back and hear that even though we're dead in sins, we're being quickened together with Christ for His great love. So the distinctives here, I told you I'd point these out on each one. The distinctives here, of course, is one of the big ones. The distinctive here would be the understanding of the full effect of sin and the fall on mankind, being dead 
in trespasses and in sin, not just injured or wounded. Those who we have disagreements about would all gladly affirm that mankind is lost and that mankind are sinners. But the extent of the effect of that sin is the point of contention. We understand the Bible to teach that man is dead in trespasses and in sins. That, that's, to me, an easy concept for us to understand. Because therefore, if you're dead, you cannot respond or even understand spiritual things. You know, we say you can't respond. That's true. But it goes further than that. It's not that you can hear it, but you just can't respond. You can't, you can't understand it. You cannot understand spiritual things unless there's a work of grace on you first. You must first be given spiritual life and ability before responding in faith and repentance. But the basic message here in this text is that all men are sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. So yes, is there a distinctive yes? Is there a basic message here that I think is just really the heart of the gospel? Yes, all men are sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. This condition is described as without strength, ungodly, sinful, and the enemies of God. And to make this personal to you, instead of focusing on all those questions about mankind as a whole, zero it into you personally today. Paul wrote this to you just like he did to all others. Are you a sinner? If so, then this text is for you personally. Do you consider yourself to be a sinner? The Bible declares you to be a sinner. So if, if God has not revealed that to you today, then I tell you from the authority of God's word that you are a sinner. You have fallen short of what God intended you to be in creation. You have fallen short of the glory of God. You have done those things which you should not do, and you have not done those things that you should. That makes you a sinner before a holy God. So then we go back to that question, how is it then that we can be saved? And I'm glad that the text doesn't end there. It would be a pretty depressing morning if I said, well, that's all I've got, and, and we'll see you next week. And you're just lost sinners, and you're before a holy and righteous God, and, and that's the end of the story. But that's not the end of the story. Go back to Romans 5, verse 8. But God commendeth his love toward us. We talked about God's love. In that while we were yet sinners, listen to this last phrase, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for us. He died for us. Paul now tells us the good news, that even though we are weak and ungodly and sinful and we're enemies, because God loved us with an everlasting love, Jesus shed his precious blood for us. What a message that is. Because of the everlasting love of God, the eternal love of God for his people, Jesus shed his precious blood for us. Jesus says, I'll take that man's place. Do you see now the beauty of substitutionary atonement? Christ said, yes, they are lost. Yes, they are sinners. Yes, they are weak. Yes, they are without strength. All of those things are true. It has offended the holiness of God. But I will take their place. I will become their substitute. I'll take that man's place. I'll take that woman's place. I'll take the place of a multitude of sinners, men and women, boys and girls from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Do you know that God loves people that are not American and don't speak English? Do you know that? I think in Western church, sometimes we forget that. God has people all over this world. We know some of them. 
We know some of them, but from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. When the Bible says that, I believe it. So because of our understanding of election and predestination, some people have a small view of what God is doing. He didn't say, I'll just take that one's place or that one's place. He took the place of a multitude of sinners. I will take his place because he's at enmity with God. He has missed the whole point of his being. He is sinless and helpless and ungodly, and I'll take his place. The word translated for here means on behalf of. That's substitution. You've heard me talk about this before. I try to avoid sports analogies because if I didn't try to avoid them, you'd get them every week. But when you substitute for someone, if Brother Robert's coaching a basketball game and he says, I want you to go in for number three, he doesn't go in and number three stays in the game. What does he do? He takes his place. He goes in, the other person comes out. Substitution means that under the wrath of God, Christ took my place. He came in and took what I deserved. And because of that, not only that, because of that, I get to take his place with his righteousness. His righteousness is placed on me. I get treated as though I lived a righteous and sinless life and he gets treated as a sinner under the wrath of God, even though he lived a righteous and sinless life. That's, that's the amazing message of the gospel. He comes to those sinners who are the very opposite of everything he is, who are repulsive to the holiness of God, and he justifies them. He atones for their sins. He saves them from his own wrath. Because, like we said, God is a just God. He's a holy God. He's a God that uh, doesn't turn to the right hand or the left. We could understand if God loved the pure, if God loved the good, if God loved the godly. But the mystery of divine love and the mystery of the gospel is, and the mystery of justification is, you could say the mystery of salvation is, salvation by grace is that God loved us when we were weak, ungodly sinners and enemies so much that he was willing to die for us. 2 Corinthians 5:21 lays this out very clearly. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That's an important aspect and we are going to get to that kind of uh, at the very end. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. For when we were yet without strength in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Remember what it said, for scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. You tie all of that together. Now, in doing that, you know, the, the man that I quoted to you at the first, he would say, you know, you're setting up this thing where Jesus is trying to get the Father who is angry at the people for sin to love his people. Well, that's false. That's false. It's not that Christ is trying to appease the wrathful Father and for his people. That's not the case at all. God's love was on you. That's where we start. And because of that, Christ took your place and satisfied and, and there was reconciliation. 
You know that word reconciliation? What does that mean? What is the word? If you reconcile with someone, does that mean that it's the first time you've ever had fellowship with them? What does it mean? It means you're reconciling. You're coming back to something. Christ's love for us was there. And that was, there was a broken fellowship that happened because of sin. And Christ reconciles that. And he brings us back into fellowship with God. There's no way for us to be saved unless Jesus goes to the cross and God the Father bears the most expensive price, the greatest cost that's ever been born to purchase our salvation. Without Christ dying for us, without Christ taking our place, there can be no salvation. So Paul is saying Jesus on the cross did not try to get God to a wrathful God to, to love his people, but rather the cross is the supreme demonstration of God's love for his people. Christ is an infinitely valuable sacrifice, infinitely precious, and yet he is the sacrifice who is offered for our sin. Paul is saying that it all began with the Father's love. Christ was willing to go to the cross to redeem and atone for sin. He's not on the cross because there's something so wonderful about us that it compels him to be there. Jesus went to the cross because of the love of God for us, despite our condition. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit applies that work. I, I cannot leave this message without at least mentioning that. The Holy Spirit applies that work to all those who are loved and are chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son. They're born again by the Spirit, which gives them spiritual life, and it brings them to faith and repentance. That's the message of the gospel. And, and you see the Trinity at work in the gospel. And so that's what we're doing on Wednesday nights, is we're, we're making sure that we get that last piece of the puzzle in there, that uh, that atonement must be applied to you in a personal way through the work of of the Holy Spirit. So in one sentence, Paul completely destroyed that whole nonsense that we heard earlier about a God who, if he did that, would be a monster. He completely destroyed it in one sentence. And he establishes this penal substitutionary atonement that we talked about in the beginning as well. So the answer to the question uh, that we posed earlier in point number two when we were undesirable and worthless and helpless, impotent enemies, hostile, haters of God, rejecters of truth, when all of those things could be said about us, about our righteousness being filthy rags, we're desperately wicked, full of deceit, how is it then can, that we can be saved? Remember, I asked that question. I said, we're at the low point here, right? We don't want to end the message here. How is it that we can be saved? Well, the answer is here in this phrase, Christ died for the ungodly Christ died for us for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more being reconciled we should be saved by his life that's verse 10 of Romans chapter 5 much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his life I somewhat agree with John Gill on this this phrase but but I think maybe his emphasis is a little off he says it is talking about one thing, but it's more talking about the other, and I say the exact opposite. So we agree, <laughs> we just, our emphasis are different. Did you know that Christ lived a righteous life and that that's a part of our salvation? It's not just that he died on the cross and paid for our sin. You have another problem too. Even if your sins are paid for, you have no righteousness to bring. And so we must be supplied with a righteousness, which is the righteousness 
of God. Through his life, we have a righteousness acceptable to God. And through his death, our sin was expiated and blotted out. I love this song. I borrowed this from a song. Our sin was expiated and blotted out, thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Why, why are those words so important? Why is it thrown into a sea without bottom or shore? I love the way the author said that. It's never going to pop up again. It's, it's going down, down, down. It's never going to, you know, you throw it into something with a shore, it might wash up on the shore. If it has a bottom, it might hit bottom and somebody might find it. Our sins are expiated. They're blotted out. They are away. Now, the distinctive here, and this would, of course, certainly be easy to point out, and it would be about the word in the text, us. To whom does that refer? Did Christ take the place of all or some? Well, we understand the Bible to teach that the us refers to those given to him by the Father. I think the Bible is very clear on that. John 6, 37. If you want to write these down, you can go later. I'm not going to take the time. John 6, 37, Ephesians 1, 4, Romans 9, 22 through 24. We understand that we understand who the us is that he talks about in this passage. But as I stated before, even, those are, even though those are important truths, and we should teach them, understand them, uh, love them, but looking back at our text, don't miss the simplest understanding of the passage. Make it personal to you. Here's a way you can do that. God commendeth his love toward me, in that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Is that not a simple way to understand that passage? God commended his love towards me, towards you, in that while you or I was a sinner, Christ died for us. Now in closing, I do want to mention Romans 5.11, which is part of our passage, where he says, And not only so, <coughs> but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. This is kind of one of those points that should kind of make itself. You shouldn't have to mention it, but Paul mentions it, so I'm going to mention it. Not only are we saved by his life and from wrath through him, not only are we reconciled to God by his Son and Spirit, not only has Christ died for us while sinners and ungodly, not only do we, from early in our previous message in chapter 5, glory in tribulations and rejoice in the hope of future glory, but we also joy in God himself. He says, and not only so, but we also joy in God. God is our Father in Christ and glorified in our salvation. God gets the glory in salvation. And if you see this beautiful picture of the gospel, then your joy will be in God himself, who he is and what he has accomplished through his son, Jesus Christ. He says, through our Lord Jesus Christ, not through the light of nature, not through the law of Moses. Paul's been through this in Romans already. You remember all these previous messages, not of works, not by righteousness done by men, not by uh, what tribe you belong to, not through angels or saints, but through Christ and he alone is their access to God, by whom we have now received the atonement. So the end of this whole discussion, what does it produce? It produces joy. If you can't be joyful about the message that we heard this morning from the Apostle Paul, that the love of God is placed on you, and because of that, even though you're a sinner, Christ died for you and provided a reconciliation for you, then you won't have joy. Uh, exult, the word used here means to exult, to rejoice jubilantly. 
So magnify the Lord. Let, his, let us exalt his name together. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. So the end result of all of this, Paul says, it brings about joy. But we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom now we have received the atonement. I know I'm out of time. I'm going I'm to mention one more thing. As I had been preparing for this message, I had an outline and I went on a conference and they were talking about how we, um, how we do spiritual formation in Christian schools. So how we teach about the things of the Bible and a biblical worldview and all of those things. And one of the speakers says, sometimes we need to pay attention to where our kids are on this ladder of personal, communal, and missional. So I, I, just, I just couldn't help but mention that at the end of this text. Can you share this message? Is this a message that you can share with other people? If it's personal to you, that's great. If it's communal, where we as a body of believers believe it, that's good. But it should also be missional. It should also be something that we share with others. So can you share this message? 1 Timothy 1.15 says this, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That's a simple message to share, isn't it? You don't have to get into a lot of deep doctrine. You don't have to worry about a lot of deep questions and things like that. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. This verse leads Paul directly into a doxology. So it produces the same joy that we see here in Romans chapter 5. Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God's love, the condition of man as sinners, and the atonement through Christ alone is the message of this this section of Romans chapter 5. God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Pray that that message has has been one of hope and one that uh, you understand and, and know. If you have never made a public profession of faith in Christ, I invite you to do so.